0: Welcome to Hope for Life, a broadcast ministry of the First Baptist Church of Ferndale, Washington, bringing you hope for life through the teaching of God's Word. Today, Pastor Lunsford is continuing his sermon series in the book of Hebrews. If you would like to follow along, you can open your Bible to the book of Hebrews, chapter 10.
1: open your Bibles to Hebrews 10, where we've been working our way through this great book. We're in chapter 10, in the middle today. Why is it that when women care for their children, they're just caring for their children, but when dads watch the kids, it's babysitting? I have to babysit. Our daughter Molly, the one that was here last week, is now in Geneva, Switzerland, working as an au pair she's gonna speak French. This family said they were looking for an American that spoke French, and she said, oh yeah, I speak French. I said, okay. <laughs> I, told, I saw a pastor friend this week at the Pastors and Wives retreat, of which I was at for one night, and I said, uh, told him about this, and I said, yes, yeah, she studied four years of French in high school. And he said, that doesn't mean nothing. <laughs> This is is a man who's been speaking French in Africa as a missionary, you know, so he understands a little bit of that. Um, You know, I I tell you, uh, seriously, uh, at least in my dream life, I would be glad to go back to the day when it was time to babysit our girls instead of the time when it's time for them to be going off and making lives of their own. Uh, The unfortunate truth is that sometimes we don't realize the privilege we have until the opportunity is gone. And as we come to Hebrews chapter 10, a privilege is going to be presented to us that sometimes we see as something less than a privilege. But I want to challenge you today with the great things that God has given us so that we might carry out this wonderful privilege and it might be a blessing to us. Hebrews 10, starting in verse 19. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Those last two verses are the ones we are considering in this passage that is beginning to apply the great truths of the first 10 chapters of this book. And it's important for us to go back to verse 19. This is the third message we've brought out of verses 19 through 25. It's important to keep going back to verse 19, because that is the basis of the command that he gives us. God never told the people in the Old Testament to do what he's going to tell us to do. And the simple reason is that they weren't capable. Now, it's not because they were lesser people than us. It's because of the work of God in us. What we see in verse 19 is that God has given us complete access to himself. He's given us boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. We can come face to face with God. Jesus made this possible, verse 20 tells us, through his flesh, that is, through his, uh, his gift of, of eternal life that comes to us through his sacrifice. And we have a high priest who keeps us close to God, that is Jesus Christ himself. And so based on that, he says, there's three things I want you to do. Number one, I want you to use the access. Draw near to God. Spend time with God. In our Sunday school class this morning, we started into Revelation 2, And the messages to the churches, and the first message to the first church says, you used to be close to me, but you've drawn away. And I would just say again, if you're in that situation today, God says, I want you to draw near. He invites you in. It's through salvation, it's through believing in Christ as your Savior, and then it's through spending time with Him in the Word and in prayer and in our conscious awareness of Him. He expects us to live in close relationship to him. And then he expects us to be consistent in our commitment to him. Verse 23, hold fast the confession of hope. Don't let anything pull you away. And in verse 24, he says, I expect you to minister to one another. That's what he says. But it's all based on what he's done in us. And so we understand that God has enabled us to minister to one another. When he calls us and he says, you have been brought in close to me, what what are the benefits of that? Well, the first one is a new power. We've been given a new power. People in the Old Testament didn't have it. Acts 1.8, Jesus is just about ready to leave the earth after his death, burial, and resurrection and his post-resurrection ministry here. He's just about ready to leave and he says, guys, talking to his disciples that would become the apostles, you're going to receive power after the Holy Spirit comes on you, and I want you to do my work. I want you to minister for me. You're going to receive power. We have been empowered to do God's work in ways that the Old Testament saints never were, and in ways that people who are outside the body of Christ cannot do. But it all revolves around the Holy Spirit coming. Acts 1-8 is words of Jesus to his disciples before the day of Pentecost, On the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came for the first time to indwell every believer in Christ. Jesus predicted this in John 14, 16 through 17 when he said to his disciples, I am going to pray to the Father and he will give you another helper, somebody like me, that he may abide with you forever. Permanent, the permanent help of the Holy Spirit. He goes on to name him as the Spirit of Truth, whom the world, that's unbelievers, cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him. Now how did they know the Holy Spirit? Well, they have been out doing God's work and they'd been doing miracles by God's Spirit. They'd seen his work all around him. You know him for he dwells with you and he will be in you see, the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament time frame, which goes all the way to the day of Pentecost, by the way, in that time frame, the Holy Spirit came around and he said, you need some help. I got a special job for you to do. I'm going to empower you to do that job. Do you remember Samson? I heard a pastor who's with the Lord now teach on Samson, and he said Samson had to be a little guy. Because otherwise, it would have been no miracle when he did all those great strength things of feet, or strengths of feet, feats of strength. <laughs> you know, when we see Arnold Schwarzenegger get a hold of some little girly man, we go, wow, look at the guns on that guy. Of course he can do that. And so Samson, Samson did it by the Spirit of God. The Spirit came on him. And man, he did incredible things. But when Samson sinned, God withdrew his spirit. That will never happen to you. And Samson came to a point of repentance and he was chained between the pillars in this great temple of the the pagans and he said, God, just let me serve you one more time. And God empowered him and he pulled down the house. that's the kind of ministry the Holy Spirit had in the Old Testament. He came upon certain people for certain times, certain ministries. That's why we hear King David in the Psalms praying, oh God, don't take your spirit from me. David knew the empowering of the Holy Spirit in a way that not everybody around him knew because he was God's king and he was the friend of God, a man after God's own heart. And so God gave him this, he said, oh, don't take that from me. You don't have to pray that prayer. God's never gonna take his spirit from you. You're never gonna get any more of his spirit than you have at the day you accept Christ as your Savior. What's important for us to understand as we come to Hebrews 10 And he says, folks, you need to minister to one another. The thing that's important to understand is you have the power to do it. You can do it. It's not a human thing. It's a God thing. God has given us a new power. Because of the blood of Christ that is referred to in verse 19, that takes away our sin... We can be indwelled permanently by the Holy Spirit, thus enabling us to be directly used by God to do His work. We not only have a new power, but we have a new position. Turn with me to Ephesians 4. And I realize these things I'm sharing with you right now are not directly in the Hebrews text, but it's important for us to understand these accompanying truths that build the foundation for what he tells us to do in Hebrews 10. Ephesians 4, verse 7. But to each one of us, that's all believers. If you're a Christian, if you've accepted Christ as your Savior, you put your name right there. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, When he, Jesus, ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this he ascended, what does it mean but that he also first descended to the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. That's a tough little text, but it's important to understand it. What it means is that the believers from the Old Testament could not even go to heaven until after the resurrection of Jesus. And so when Jesus was resurrected and on his way to heaven, he gathered up all those folks in paradise, Abraham's bosom, the Bible calls it. He gathered them who had been held captive by Satan, Satan saying they can't go to heaven, they still have sin in their lives. He gathered them all up and he took them with him and he led captivity captive and he gave gifts to men. This is an allusion to the practice in that time It happens today somewhat, but more commonly then when a king would conquer an area. He would conquer it and take all of the best valuables, and he'd go back home and he'd give gifts to his soldiers as their pay, and he'd give gifts to the populace of his country to make himself popular. He took, he spoiled the enemy and gave gifts to his people. God spoiled Satan, when Jesus died, was buried and resurrected, and now he comes and gives gifts to us. Verse 11, and what are the gifts he gave? He gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastor teachers. Why? For the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, until we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man to the measure and stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But, speaking the truth in love, we may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. How many Christians are important in this church? How many? All. All! All. Every single one! Why is that? Because God has called us together that way. Do you know how many teachers we need in the church? The exact number God puts here you know how many people with the gift of mercy and compassion we need? Exactly the number that God puts here. But you know what? We need every person who has the gift of teaching to use it. Because the only way we're going to grow is as every part does its job. And I'm not just talking about numerical growth. Much more so I'm talking about a godliness growth. You know the word he uses for every joint? It literally means every tendon. I finished putting a roof on my house a week ago Saturday. I still have numbness in these two fingers from carpal tunnel. I've had that over the years kind of real lightly. Man, last Monday, oh, it just ached all day long. And I said, oh God, please deliver me from this because I have such lousy medical insurance that I will not be able to afford surgery. And so he did. It's getting better day by day. That's a joke, come on. It's not a complaint, it's a joke. <sighs> One little spot right in there, squeezing something. Is Did I ever think that little thing was important? Nope. I think it's important now. You might not think you're important in the church. And you know what? Some other people might look at you and think you're not important. And you know what? That's a mistake. God has given us a new position. Not only has he given us power through the Holy Spirit, but through the Holy Spirit, every single person who ever believes in Jesus Christ is given at least one spiritual gift, which is a spiritual ability from God to do the ministry. Now, I love our musicians, and they do a great job, but you know what, music is not a gift, not a spiritual gift. They have a spiritual gift, and they're using it through music. There's all kinds of spiritual gifts. God tells us about them, we're not gonna take time to look at them in detail today, but you've been given one. And it's not the same as a natural talent, it is a spiritual ability to serve the body of Christ. And the question you need to ask yourself today is, am I using the position I've been given? You might not think you can do anything, but that's not true. God has a place for you. Young or old, talented or quote-unquote untalented, God has a position for you. He's also given us now a new focus. Let's go back to Hebrews 10 and really get into the meat of these two verses. And he says, you've got this power, you've got this position because of the blood of Christ, verse 19. Now look at verse 24. He said, your focus is supposed to be on getting everything you can personally get when you come to church. Is that what it says? Look at verse 24 in case you haven't. In case that's what you think, look at verse 24. It says, consider who? One another. Folks, I wanna challenge you more than I ever have before because this is the verse to say, when you come to church, what are you thinking about? The word consider, literally means to, to set your mind on something, to put your mind on it, okay? I put a pork roast in the oven this morning on the time bake. Last time I did that, it was still sitting there cold as a mackerel when I got home. <laughs> we ate it cold. <laughs> hey, I'm not thinking about the pork roast when I come to church. If it doesn't work, we'll, we'll have plan B. We got hot dogs in the fridge, you know, whatever it is. Okay? What are you thinking about when you come to church? What is your mind set on? God says it needs to be set on other people. Now, isn't that kind of strange from a human perspective to say, You I mean, I'm not supposed to come into church, you know, like a human sponge, just soaking up everything I can get for me? No! God says you consider others. Turn to Philippians 2. Philippians 2 instructs us by the example of Jesus in this regard. Philippians 2, verse 3. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition. Now you say, I'm not selfish. Well, who are you most concerned about? Yourself? Well, of course. Well, then you're selfish. (laughs) When you come to church, you are either selfishly minded or in lowliness of mind, you are esteeming others more than yourself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Now, I understand you need to come to church saying, you know, I need this ministry. I I hope you do. And, And... it's my basic belief that that's why people come to church. Really profound, isn't it? But people say, you know, I need this. Yeah, that's, that's a good thing. But are you coming in here strictly saying, what is there for me? Or are you coming in saying, God, please minister to me while I minister to others? Verse 4, let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Did Jesus come to earth going, man, this is going to be a blast? Boy, I am excited to come to earth. Nothing better than 33 years on the planet I created. No, that's silly. That's almost blasphemous. He came here, why? He was in the form of God, but he didn't consider that something to be hung on to a selfish concern, he made himself of no reputation, verse 7, he took on the form of a bondservant. He came in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance, that is, his body was that of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has also highly exalted him. Hebrews chapter 12 that we're going to come to eventually here tells us specifically he did not enjoy the cross. That was not fun for him. That was not easy for him. He despised the shame, but he endured it. Why? Because there was joy set before him, and that joy was sitting right here in these pews. He looked down through the years. He says, Dave Lunsford's going to need a savior, So I am gonna persevere in this difficult situation that I do not care because I care for him. He is the model for our ministry at church. We don't come and say, oh, I didn't get blessed too good today. We come and say, boy, wasn't it great that God worked through me to help so and so today? Our focus is to be on others. God commands us to come together for the purpose of ministering to one another. You know, we've all quoted this verse lots of times. Let us consider one another. uh, we, We quote verse 25 a lot. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. And we often talk about church attendance as though it is a goal in and of itself and sometimes we get the opinion that when we come to church and go home God puts a little brownie point there next to our name you know, he, he's, he, you know I own keeps the attendance here, God keeps it in heaven Lunsford, there's another one now, having said that, you're going, well, are you, do you mean I don't have to come to church? no, what I mean is, coming isn't the goal it's what you do here that's the goal he says, Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. What is that new objective that we're supposed to have? The new objective is the godly living in our sisters and brothers. Our duty, quoting from a hundred-year-old commentary that I love on my shelf, our duty to fellow Christians is not merely commonplace, everyday human kindness. Our call is to serve our Christian brethren Precisely in the sphere of the Christian, that is their spiritual life. I, I, I think you've probably heard this phrase that says, We're all ministers here. God really has empowered you to minister to other people. Some of you are sitting there right now going, Oh man, Pastor Dave, I'm so, you know, I'm so, so this or so that, I can't minister to anybody. No, you can. You really can. And that's what God wants you to do. Our new objective is the godly living in our sisters and brothers. He says we're supposed to stir them up. Uh, the the uh, King James says to provoke them to love and good works. It's a word that is oftentimes used negatively about people having strife or problems that are very intense. But here it's used positively. To stir up, to spur one another on, to stimulate it literally means to sharpen beside, to sharpen someone. You know, when you sharpen a piece of metal that you're using to, cutting, to cut something with, little flakes of metal come off. Do you suppose the, 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 the knife, if it could talk, would say, oh, oh, Dave, please quit sharpening me. This hurts. You know, sometimes you're going to provoke somebody, and it's going to hurt a little bit. But you know what? They're a sharper tool when you get done. God says we're supposed to stir up, to sharpen, to encourage, all these different words. Uh, uh, J. Vernon McGee, who's with the Lord now, said this. Some Christians tell me I have troubled their consciences. Well, I hope I've troubled your conscience (laughs) so you will love one another and so you will do some good works for God. (laughs) Ha, ha. Uh, preaching has been described as comforting, how does it, uh, discomforting those that are comfortable and uh, comforting those that are uncomfortable, or something like that. How do we stimulate our fellow Christians to godliness? How do we do it? He says, he says we're supposed to be doing it. How do we do it? First of all, we do it by a holy life. P- the Apostle Paul told his disciples, people he'd led to the Lord, He said, you imitate me, and I'm going to imitate the Lord. You know what? When you come to church, you should be willing to say that. You know, the scariest thought in the world for me as a pastor is that you're going to imitate me. No, I'm never going to imitate you. No way. (laughs) (laughs) Here's the way it gets put in our circles. The church will never rise higher than its pastor and I believe that's true in terms of spirituality. And that's not a comforting thought to me. But what about your circle? a wanna leader, Sunday school teacher, M&M's leader, whatever your circle is here, nursery, children's church, imitate me as I imitate the Lord. The number one way you can stimulate your fellow Christians to godliness is by your godly life. And you know how this happens? It happens casually. It doesn't happen as you stand up and pontificate and say, well now, children, this is the way you should live. Now, some of that gets passed across, but it gets passed across casually when those people are talking to you about what you did last week. And they're talking to you, and you're talking about how you handle the situation. Oh, you know, my boss, blah, 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 blah. And right there, while they listen to you talk about your boss, they are learning about the holy life. They're either learning a good lesson or a bad lesson. Your holy life will do more than anything else to help people follow the Lord as you interact. Why do we have fellowship times here at church? Is it because you people don't know how to cook at home? No. It's because as we talk and eat and share together, God's work is done, it's accomplished. Holy life, follow me as I imitate Christ. Number two, a clear testimony of God's work. When I ask you to share a blessing and you say God did this or God did that or God did the other, that preaches a whole sermon in one sentence because somebody else is sitting here and they need some help in their life and they're either hearing, hey, God can help or they're hearing, no, nothing's going on here. When you have a chance to share. You know, I I finished my roof uh, a week ago. I worked on it for three weeks. Parts of my roof were uncovered for three weeks. And people said, boy, you sure were lucky. And every time somebody has said something about the weather in my roof, I say, you know, I thank the Lord for that. The Lord answered prayer. And, and, And to a few people, I've said, you know, as I was trimming the last little gable just like this, I was standing on one part of the roof trimming this gable, the raindrops fell. And I thought, man, this must be how Noah felt. <laughs> because there were two times when it was threatening to rain, and I said, oh, God, please, if you just keep it up there, I just gotta keep going a little bit farther. Hey, when we give a testimony to God's work, John Harder's had a tremendous problem with his back, and he, some folks prayed for him, and he's received a tremendous degree of healing there, and he tells people about it. Everywhere he gets a chance. That is how you minister to the body of Christ. You share a clear testimony of what God has done. Another aspect to our testimony and to how we minister to one another is the persevering life example. Everybody here has some difficulty in their life. Some of them are small, some of them are large. And when you come and hear somebody talk about their difficulty, or maybe you come and don't hear them talking about their difficulty, and later on you find out about it, and you think, boy, there's somebody who's not just always talking about how hard their life is. Wow. And all of a sudden, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, becomes real when it says, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man and God is faithful who will help you as you demonstrate a persevering life other people are ministered to. Another way that we stimulate our fellow Christians to godliness is by an increasing knowledge of the word. When I go to a conference and I hear a man preach and he pulls together God's truth in a way that I have missed or he, he, he preaches on a text that I've missed, man, I just think, oh, I gotta do better. I gotta go home and study more, I gotta, I gotta somehow be better at this, it, 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 it challenges me, it draws me to that. That should happen here. When somebody asks you a question, you ought to quote a Bible verse if there's one to go with it and say, well, God says this, and you know what, they're going to be challenged because they didn't know that verse for that problem. Increasing knowledge of the word. Uh, my counseling mentor in the biblical counseling uh, training that I've been through, man, that guy challenges me. I think... If I could just be half as good as him. This guy is so sharp in the word. Pulls these verses out just just like that. Oh man, what a challenge. Confrontation of sin is another way that we stimulate one another to love and good works. I heard of a situation this week that grieved me so bad. A a church, and I I won't tell you the particulars because I I don't want to defame anybody and that's not my intent. But there's a situation that I was made aware of where a church should have stood up and publicly rebuked their pastor. Because 1 Timothy 6 specifically says, the elders who sin rebuke before all, that all may fear. You ought to have such a regard for sin and righteousness. Our church ought to have such a regard for sin and righteousness that when somebody sins and refuses to repent, that they are rebuked publicly and others ought to fear. They go, you know, I gotta clean up my life. That's what ought to be happening. Another way that we stimulate one another to love and good work is by invitations to serve. Some of you are in leadership. Glenn, and we we talked about with the Iwana Club last year, struggling to get leaders. I said, let's give it a shot, let's do everything we can. We've got nine new leaders and most of the others returning from last year—what a great thing! I knew a Sunday school superintendent at one time who used to say, "When I walk down the hall of the church, people turn and go the other way because they knew he's going to be asking about serving." Hey, friends, don't you ever do that? You know why? Because you are turning down an invitation from God. See, oh, Pastor Dave, you're getting a little too mystical on me there. Hey. How else is God going to invite you to serve except through the body? Is God going to talk to you? Hey, Dave! No. People are going to come and say, Would you do this? Would you do that? Now I know there's a limit to our time and our resources, and I'm not for overcommitment. And some of you know I've talked to you about that and said, hey, we want to be careful. We don't want to overcommit you. Uh, that's, that's very good wise, wisdom. That's stewardship of our life. But Having said that, God is going to invite you to serve. Hey, you know what? Every time we pass the offering plate, you are invited to serve. God has empowered you to minister through your finances. Now, some of you can't do very much, and some of you can do a lot. Every time the offering bag goes down, there's an invitation to serve. Every time Chuck stands up here and says, Hey, tonight we're having a business meeting. And when Pastor Dave stands up afterwards and says, This is really an important meeting not because of what we're going to vote on, but because we're going to communicate a lot of things that are going to be formative for how we move ahead in the next few months. And because you're going to get to see a drawing of how the elevator addition could look, and not even the deacons have seen this one, and it's a winner. When I looked at it, I went, oh, of course, this is what it should look like. That is an invitation for you to participate in the ministry of the church. And you need to say, this is God inviting me to participate. The teaching of the word is another way we stimulate one another. The formal teaching, I'm doing it right now. I'm trying to do all that I can to provoke you to love and good works. When you teach your Sunday school class, when you lead your Wana group, or your ladies Bible study, or whatever it is. And when people listen to those things, God is stimulating us to love and good works. One of the things that we need to do to stimulate one another to love and good works is coaching. You know what coaching is? Coaching is when you come alongside, we typically think of coaching with athletes, and the coach watches them run, he watches them jump, he watches them block, whatever it is. He says, now, if you would just put your hand this way, or if you would just start with this foot, or you would do this, I think you'd do better. You know, we need to do that in the body of Christ. A lot of counseling is really coaching. It's saying, well, here's what you've been doing, why don't you try this and that? And coaching also is, dare I say, giving a guy a pat on the rear. Don't do that here, don't do that here. Don't do that here. <laughs> do that here. <laughs> Maybe it's giving him a hug around the shoulder. But you know, the coach, when, the, when the guy does a good job, the coach goes, good job. Gives a football player a slap on the rear, that's the traditional thing, you know, if you're a volleyball player, you high five, low five, other five, you know, all those fives that do a little jig, you know, only girls do that. (laughs) If you want to do that here, you want to do the high five, that's okay. (laughs) But you know what? That's what we need to do. When somebody says, hey, I did such and such and such and such, we go, hey, great, that's a good job. You did a good thing. You handled that well. It's coaching. It's encouraging. And then sometimes we need to do comforting. Sometimes we need to put our arm around somebody and say, hey, you're doing the best you can. Hey, you're hanging in there, good for you. You know, what, you know why that is? Because you can't solve their difficulty. And do you know why you can't solve it? <laughs> because it is a trial from God and God is gonna solve it in his good time. It's not your job to solve it, but it may be your job to comfort them. Who are some of the people that have encouraged me in my godliness? My mom and my dad have consistently trusted God. I have never known them when they weren't living for the Lord. Now, I'm sure, because they're human beings, that there have been times in my 47 years, is that how old I am, close. I'm sure there were times when they struggled, but they have consistently lived for the Lord. They have consistently served the Lord and sought to serve the Lord. When I was a teenager, I was at church And there were camp counselors there who just shared their own personal testimony and I can remember looking at them thinking that's the kind of life I want. And it drew me to the the dedicated life. My pastoral education professor at Western Baptist College loved the ministry. He loved the ministry. So much so that he drew all kinds of guys into that department. And a lot of them aren't pastoring today but it doesn't matter because they love the Lord And those of us who did make it to the ministry were blessed by his love for the ministry. My theology professor loved the truth and gave me a love of the truth. Barney Dyke, who some of you know, in our days at Nooksack, used to sit right down there about where my mom is and say, amen. Sometimes he woke up and said it at the wrong time, but most of the time. (laughs) But I'll tell you what Barney Dyke did do right is he went to the auction at Everson every thursday or whatever day it was and he witnessed to those old tough nuts out there always going out and i don't you know he was old when i knew him and now he's with the lord but he was always witnessing for the lord pastor george cox who i used to think was a tough old nut as a pastor but you know what he raised a good family and that matters more in the long run joyce palco in our church who is victorious and joyful through great physical difficulty She's not here today. She sits right down there. No doubt, her difficulties have got her down today. But when you see her next week, she's going to be smiling like she was at the Awana night, Wednesday night, serving the Lord, doing what she can. Folks, we all are called to minister to one another. And he says, because of that, look at verse 25. There's a commitment have. What's the commitment? Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. Isn't it interesting that this was probably written uh, shortly before AD 70. Jesus died, you know, lived 33 years, so we've got a range here of maybe 40 years after Christ left the earth, and already there were people saying, oh, we don't need to go to church. You know, we worship God in the mountains, and we get together at our house with a couple of friends, and God says not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together. God says you need to be committed to being here, again, not just for the brownie point of attendance, but to be committed to being here so you can be used by him to minister to one another. The story is told of a wife who cooked a wonderful meal for her husband, and it just blessed him so good. You know, Once in a while you get your teeth into something and it's all just so tasty. After dinner, he was so moved for her service that he began to eloquently tell her how much he loved her and how big the river would that he would swim across and the mountains he would climb just to be with her. And she said, will you help me wash the dishes? (laughs) Guess you've been there, huh, ladies? (laughs) Hey, if you're going to talk about loving God, if you're going to talk about loving people, if you're going to talk about loving the church, how about showing up? Now, I'm I'm obviously speaking to the choir, right? You're here. You're going, yeah, yeah, I'm here. (laughs) All right. Got to give this tape to my brother, you know. (laughs) The exhortation still needs to come to us. We need to be committed to being here. Now, do I think you've got to be here every time the door is open? No. No some of you are going, oh, Pastor Dave, don't say that because then, you know. We'll... No, I understand that you are at different points in your life. I understand that there are different things going on in your lives. You know, Wayne Fair is up there in the balcony. He loved to be here more, but he works uh, 2 to 12 every day. He can't be here on Wednesday night. I understand that. But the question I'm asking you today is, are you committed to being here? Or is it just kind of a hobby? You know what a hobby is? A hobby is something you you play at when you get time. I play golf. If you attend church like I play golf, you're going to hell. (laughs) Bottom line, right there. (laughs) If you come to church as often as I play golf, you're not growing in the Lord. I guarantee you. And in fact, maybe that needs to be a thermometer. When you look at your life and you're thinking, you know, boy, things just don't work out for me that good. Maybe you need to stop and say, where is my commitment to being part of the body of Christ? Have you been baptized to show that you believe in Christ as your Savior? You should be. You should say, I am committed to the body of Christ and baptism identifies me with that body so I'm going to be baptized. Have you committed yourself through membership? In particular, this is for adults and for young adults to say, I am committed to being here and to serving. Well, there's a new action that God wants us to take as well and that is exhorting. He says we need to be exhorting one another. Literally, it says... The word literally means to come alongside. It's the same word that's called the helper when it's applied to the Holy Spirit in John 14, 6. God sent the Holy Spirit to help us and he's called the helper. He comforts, admonishes, beseeches, exhorts, he does whatever we need. And do you know what? God wants you to be a helper for your brothers and sisters. Now, you don't take the place of the Holy Spirit but you minister for him. You are the skin on God, if you will, as he reaches out and touches us. You are part of God's ministry plan. Isn't that incredible? God says, I'm going to have the Holy Spirit. He's going to do some things in those, those Christians and do some things in the unbelievers to bring them to Christ. But then I'm going to use the Christians under the power of the Holy Spirit to minister to one another. He didn't say, I'm gonna use the angels. He didn't say, I want you to come here and spectate while the Holy Spirit does all the work. He wants us to minister to one another. And then there's a new motivation that we're given. Verse 25, he says, do this and so much the more as you see the day approaching. First Corinthians three tells us that when we see Christ, he will evaluate our life and service and reward us for all that we have done for him. One of the chief means of honoring Christ with your life is serving his body, the church, week by week. John MacArthur said this about this verse, the only place we can remain steadfast until he returns is with his people. Did you get that? The only place we can remain steadfast until Christ returns is with his people. We need each other. We need to be in fellowship with each other as we mutually strengthen each other and encourage each other. Wow. One of the things that's changed in our society since 9-11 of 2001 is that people seem to be more willing to take responsibility when things aren't right. When we heard Todd Beamer tell his wife that some of the passengers were going to do something, and then he said, let's roll, we all got a lump in our throat and a shiver in our spine and we all hoped that we would be able to do the same thing if we were in the same situation. We have discovered in our country that we must be our brother's keeper. Christian, you must be your brother's keeper, your sister's helper, the encourager, comforter, rebuker, and teacher of your family in Christ. Heavenly Father, what a great privilege you have called us to, wow. You have called us and empowered us to do ministry on your behalf. Oh Father, make it so, and make it grow more and more here, day by day and week by week. Thank you for new leaders willing to take new responsibility in our Awana Club. May that happen in every area of ministry not because we have slots to fill, but because we have souls to reach and disciple. Help us to love one another by ministering to one another. I pray in Christ's name, amen.
0: Thank you for listening to Hope for Life, the broadcast teaching ministry of the First Baptist Church of Ferndale, Washington. You can learn more about our ministry on the internet at www.ferndalebaptist.com or you can contact us by mail at First Baptist Church, P.O. Box 69, Ferndale, Washington, 98248. Telephone 360-384-3111. We invite you to join us for worship Sunday mornings at 1045 a.m., Our prayer is that God's Word will give you hope for life.